No more pain. No more tears. No more death. What's been broken and under the curse of sin will be restored. But until then, we wait. It's like waiting for a loved one to come out of surgery or like a child waits on Christmas Eve. What does waiting involve? What should it look like? How should the end of the story, which is what we're talking about this morning, how should it affect the way we live today? How should the end of the story fuel our faith right now? So if you've ever watched a Netflix series that you really loved and you're committed to, you know how exciting it is when you get to the end, right? Because you're invested. You've invested a lot of hours. You have your favorite characters, and you want to know what happens to those characters. Now, if you're a bit behind, you might, you might just shut off the world until you have time to watch the end. You don't want to find out through the news. You don't want to find out through conversations over here. You want to find out how it ends. Years ago, I, I used an illustration uh, from the last episode in Lost. I was teaching at this youth conference, and I heard, I, heard, I was explaining the last episode. It had been a long time since Lost was, was aired and on, and I heard this shriek, no, no. Apparently, I gave it away for her. Spoiler alert here today. I'm about to tell you how the biblical storyline ends. And it's important that we know how it's going to end. Knowing the end of the storyline and keeping that end in view will help us to live faithfully and joyfully in the present. Knowing the end and keeping it in view will help us to live faithfully and joyfully in the present. We're going to look at three things today. First, we wait in eager expectation. These are longings in all of our hearts. Even creation is longing for something. We wait in eager expectation. Second, for God to make everything new. And third, Jesus will appear and bring salvation. Let's look at Romans chapter 8. First, we're looking, we wait in eager expectations. There are longings in our hearts and even in creation itself. Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 18. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. And we'll stop there. Romans 8 is, is all about new life in Jesus lived through the Spirit. It explains how the children of God share in the sufferings of Jesus 
but will also share in his glory. And Paul goes on to give the church in Rome, he's writing to the church in Rome, but now us, we've received this letter. He gives the perspective that we desperately need. Again, in verse 18, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will, that will be revealed in us. He's saying, if you could put all our suffering, all our heartache and trials on one side and compare it with the glory and the splendor, the beauty that will be revealed in us, our sufferings would become more like a distant memory that we can hardly recall the details of. But you can't even do that. That's what he's saying. Because what will be, what we will become, and what we will have in Christ Jesus will not only overshadow our pain and suffering, but Paul says it isn't even worth comparing the two. Verses 19 through 20. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. Creation waits. Might seem strange, but all of creation we have discovered as we've talked through this storyline is under the curse because of mankind's rebellion. So creation is waiting in eager expectation. I just love that imagery. For the children of God to be revealed. This life with all of its brokenness, this sin-sick world will one day be made new. And all of creation is waiting. It'll be made new, but, but not yet. Not yet. Not until the children of God are revealed. It will one day, though, be liberated from its bondage to what? To decay and death brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We're learning of what will be. That's what we're learning. We're learning the biblical perspective, the Christian view of what will be. Verses 21 and on, it says, the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay, brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Described as the pains of childbirth. There's a a growing hope and a joy for what's to come in the midst of all the pain. Now, any mother in here understands this illustration. Severe pain, overshadowed by the sweet goodness of holding that baby. The pain is real. Oh, is it real? But it's overshadowed by the beauty of this precious child in your arms. Are you groaning? Are you groaning with all of creation? Are you longing? Are there longings in your heart for what will be? Are you dissatisfied with the way things are in this present world? Are you eagerly waiting in hope for what's to come? I wrote a song years ago about someone that I love who was experiencing brokenness and suffering and pain and the words go like this. I'm tired of all the struggles. I'm tired of all the stress. I'm tired of all the pain you feel, and I'm tired of you losing rest. Sorrow fills my heart like a drug, and it leaves me face to face with your pain. But there's hope beyond this frustrating mess. There's hope beyond this weary song. 
And so I'll stand up with all of creation and I'll groan until the kingdom comes. We groan until the kingdom comes. There's longings in our heart. We see people we love suffering and walking through painful experiences and we ourselves walk through uh, tremendous sorrow and brokenness. We live in a broken world. We live in a sin-sick world. Remember, the storyline helps us know how we got so messed up to begin with, but it doesn't leave us there. We groan. We groan until the kingdom comes. What's that about? You remember Jesus and what he proclaimed. The kingdom of God is at hand. That was his message. Jesus' message was all about the kingdom. What's a kingdom? What does a kingdom have? A king. Jesus is the king. Jesus is the Messiah, which means Christ, the anointed one, the king. You see, back in the day, way back in the day, kings would be uh, anointed with oil as they were uh, enthroned and they were inaugurated as king. Well, here Jesus comes on the scene as the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ, and he's proclaiming God's kingdom, God's rule, God's just and good and righteous rule. And what does he do as he's proclaiming this kingdom? He goes about showing God's good and just rule by healing, by casting out demons. He shows his authority over the uh, uh, evil spirits. He shows his authority over nature itself, calming the wind and the waves. He shows his authority over uh, mankind's rebellious heart. People come and they bow and they, they surrender their lives to him. He's showing his power and authority and his goodness and his love, his rule. It's a good rule. It's a beautiful rule. So he announces the kingdom of God is near. And Jesus goes throughout his ministry describing what the kingdom of God is like. What does it look like? What does it mean to live under God's rule, under the rule of his king, under the rule of Jesus? It's good. It's a good rule. But there's a tension. Listen, Jesus announced the kingdom of God is at hand. It's here. And people are submitting to his rule. We ourselves, if we acknowledge Jesus as the Son of God and we bow to his uh, authority and we submit our lives to him and we look to him as Savior, well, he rules. We Actually, the scriptures say we become new creations in Christ Jesus. This new creation, this new work has begun in our hearts. But the fullness of what Jesus will do is not yet. And so we live in this in-between time of what's been announced and what's experienced in Christ, but what will be. We could say we're in the the in-between. The already not yet kingdom. We're looking ahead of what will be. And do you remember, if if you were here, when we went through the Gospel of Mark, we described the kingdom of God as the sun in the morning. It's rising. And we know the sun is coming up because we we can see the light and we see the splashes of color, the pinks and the orange and and these beautiful colors just splashing across the sky. The sun is coming. I mean, in in just a few minutes, it's going to be in the sky. We're going to see it. It's going to be radiant and beautiful. We can't see it yet. Not in its fullness. That's what the kingdom of God is like. Now, we know one day it will be upon us in all of its glory. We live and we feel the tension between how it is and how it should be. But we wait. 
We wait with creation, with eager expectation. It's like waiting for a loved one to come out of surgery or like a child waits on Christmas Eve or like a groom waits on his wedding day for the doors to open at the back of the church for his bride to be revealed. We wait in eager expectation for what will be. We're holding on to promises. There's longings that are growing in our heart and they should be. Because God promises that he will right every wrong, that he will make all things new. His promises will be fulfilled. Every horrible thing that ever happened will not only be undone and repaired, but will in some way make our glory and joy even greater. Romans 8, verse 23. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. We ourselves We ourselves have the first fruits of the Spirit. The Spirit of God is is God's very presence for every believer. Remember, Romans 8 is all about what it means to live life in the Spirit. The Spirit of God is God's very presence with every believer. We, by faith, look to Jesus. We receive him as Lord and Savior. We bow our hearts and our lives to him. And this, this beautiful thing happens. God's very presence now is with us always, his Spirit. I love how Ephesians describes the presence, the personal presence of God's power by his spirit. Look with me in Ephesians chapter 1. Verse 13. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel, the good news of your salvation. When you believed... What happened? It says, when you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance, guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. A guarantee of what's to come. The Spirit. I like to compare this a lot like the day I gave Valerie... Uh, a ring. I asked her to marry me over 20 years ago on a beach in front of the Thunderbird <laughs> Hotel. And the plane with a banner that came to ask her for me was late. Actually, it was early. It was early, and it spelled my name wrong. So Darian is a really lucky guy. But I remember that night that when I gave her that ring, that ring said this. It said, oh, in just a few months, we're going to be husband and wife. This is a guarantee of what we'll be. I wanted it to be like a couple weeks, you know. It's a guarantee. She's mine. She belongs to me. That's what this ring was a symbol of. She's She's mine. Well, one day she will be. And and like the spirit of God in us is is a deposit. It's a guarantee of our inheritance. God has marked us. We're his. The personal presence of God with us. We'll learn more about that next week as we dive into the book of Acts. But we ourselves have the first fruits of the spirit. The spirit of God is present with us. What does this all mean? What are we waiting for? What's the hope to come? 
The Old Testament prophets spoke of a day when all things would be restored. We don't have time to, to dive into Isaiah or Ezekiel or Jeremiah. Maybe, maybe one Sunday we will, I'm sure, in the future. But there's this hope and there's this, there's this prophetic word that's been spoken for hundreds and thousands of years that one day all things would be restored, that God's going to make all things new. And the church has always anticipated that this would happen when Jesus returns again. We're waiting with eager expectation of what will be. The curse will be lifted. Creation will be liberated. And new creation has already begun in the hearts and lives of those who profess Jesus as king. And that new creation will spill over into all of creation. Now, knowing this is going to happen is one thing. Understanding what it will be like and how it's all going to unfold is is another. So, first, we looked at we wait in eager expectation. Second, for God to make everything new. These are promises that God has made. Let's go to Revelation chapter 21. Now, Genesis 1 and 2, we talked about Genesis 1 and 2 a few weeks ago as we looked at creation. Genesis 1 and 2 and Revelation 19 through 22, they function as bookends to God's story of redemption. In Revelation 21, we don't see people being taken out of the world and brought into heaven. Instead, we see heaven coming down and cleansing and renewing and perfecting this material world. So the biblical view of things is resurrection and restoration. There will be a cosmic renovation that takes place. God creating the perfect home for his bride, his church, his children. And not just a making up of the life you never had, but a restoration of life. A putting back of all the things uh, the way they were originally designed to be. This is our hope. The future is not some immaterial paradise, but a new heaven and a new earth. We are not going to be floating on clouds with diapers on, stroking a harp. That's not our future. I don't want that future. That's not our future. Look at Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will uh, will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. We'll pause there. God has promised to make everything new. This is a passage that I have read a number of times as people are preparing to die. It is an honor to come alongside them 
one of the greatest honors that I have as a pastor. To stand with them what are the most trying times that we'll all experience. And to point them to what matters most. Revelation 21 and 22 is apocalyptic literature. Apocalypse means revelation, where we get the word revelation. It's unveiling. God pulling back the curtain to reveal what's going on behind the scenes of human history. Jesus uh, is revealing these things to John the Apostle for the church's sake, for, for our sake. So apocalyptic writing uses symbolism to express its message. This isn't the only place we see this kind of genre, this kind of uh, writing. We see it in Daniel 7. We see it in the prophet Zechariah. We see it in Isaiah. There's lots of examples of apocalyptic uh, literature and writing. But the visions that are found in the book of Revelation are designed to strengthen believers to persevere despite severe suffering and persecution. The book of Revelation would have given so much joy and hope and faith to the early church as they faced severe persecution. Now, there's a lot of debate surrounding the chapters of Revelation, in particular what we're reading. There's a lot of theological camps that have been set up around these debates. I want us to step back and appreciate the imagery that we find here. Let it do what it was meant to do. It was meant to leave a lasting impression, okay? A lasting impression that equips us and fills our hearts with wonder and anticipation of what will be. It is giving us images and symbols to help us run it's giving us something to hold on to revelation 21 verse 1 a new heaven a new heavens and a new earth let's hit the pause button here let's just think about that a new heavens and a new earth the domain of god and man intersecting and becoming one where have we seen this before Nowhere except one place. Jesus. Fully man, fully God. Fully man, fully God. This, the intersection of, of God and man. It's beautiful. He is really new creation. We see that it's made new. All things made new. We see there's no sea. What is this? It's symbolic of there being no more chaos. The sea was symbolic of chaos and darkness. Do you remember Genesis 1? The surface of the deep, the chaos of the waters. Then it it presents to us this new city. Revelation 21 presents this new city prepared as a bride dressed for her husband. A city dressed as a bride? Again, these are symbols. And then we see that this is really talking of God's presence because what does it say in verse uh, 3? And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place, his presence is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. Well, what's going on here? God's presence is restored. God is with his people. God is the one who will wipe away every tear from your eye. You know, it's always been about God walking with man, ever since Genesis 1 and 2. Even when man rejected God, what did God do? What did God do back when we talked of the story of creation? He had mercy and grace. 
What has God done? When we, we learned about it when we looked at rescue. Jesus became a man and walked among us. Why? To restore us, to bring reconciliation between God and man, the people of God, the new creation of God, described as this new city and as a bride. Oh, this speaks of God's presence and love. This speaks of community and covenant, of promises, no longer isolated, but together. Revelation paints this beautiful picture and describes a great multitude that no one could count, every tribe, every tongue, gathered around the throne. Now, some things, though, will come to an end. All things will be made new, but because of that, some things will actually come to an end. No more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. I can do that. That sounds good to me. God is going to close the curtain on Satan, evil, injustice, sin, and death. You know that frustrating cycle of life followed by death? It'll be finished. Done. Over. Death will be swallowed up. Where, O death, is your victory, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. It's like he's taunting death. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? You got nothing on us because our lives are hidden in Christ. That's what he's saying. And so he says, now in light of this church, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord. You know your labor is not in vain. Look what Jesus has done. Our lives are made new. Death has no hold on us. Death itself will be swallowed up. Now let's look at Revelation 22. Verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will, be, uh, will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the, they will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. So John deliberately uses some of the landmarks of Genesis 2, if you picked up on it. There's a river flowing from the throne of God. There's a garden. There's the tree of life with leaves that heal the nations. If we remember the imagery of uh, chapter 21 of Revelation, there's a city and a bride, a garden. And here there's a garden. There's also a temple that we didn't read about. These are images that communicate restoration, the restoration we all long for. In Revelation 21, verse 5, God wants us to take him at his word. He says, these words are trustworthy and true. God is faithful. He will accomplish what he's promising to accomplish. There's power in the images we find in Revelation 21 and 22. You know, I was, I was talking to someone this week, and he was, he was talking about what he hoped would be one day. No more money, no more social status. He was dreaming of a world that, 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 that maybe would eradicate a lot of the things that cause division. And, and, and as you, you think about the things that we love to do without, poverty, maybe government, <laughs> maybe capitalism, I don't know where you're at. But you know, that doesn't go far enough. 
I was able to just share with him a little bit about what we're talking about today. The Bible presents a future that goes a lot further than that. Making all things new. Is there hope for what will be? Even when what we're given are images that are trying to paint the picture that our real problem is not poverty, is not ignorance, is not capitalism. The real problem is evil and sin and brokenness. And how does God deal with evil? How does he deal with sin? How does he make the world new again? And these are the images that were given in Revelation 21 and 22 that we can hold on to and run with. This is how he's doing it. Through Christ. This is the newness that will be. And it's beautiful. I was on the phone with a friend whose best friend passed away recently. And she'd been uh, calling her friend's phone simply to listen to the voicemail greeting. She just wanted to hear her voice. I did a lot of listening and agreeing that I too missed her friend. She's dear to my heart. But then I said, uh, don't forget what Jesus accomplished. That he lived and he died in our place. And I know you believe this and that you treasure this. And I know you know what this means for you now and when you die. That's what I was saying to her. But do you know what it means for the future? That Jesus' death and resurrection set into motion the unstoppable reality of new creation. That he will make everything new. No more pain. No more tears, no more death. Instead, what's been broken and under the curse of sin will be restored. The curse lifted. And you know what? I can't wait for that day. That's what I was telling her. I can't wait for that day. And in view of that day, how will you live today? That's what I was asking her. Because that day is coming soon. The day where all things will be made new. It's coming soon. So how will we live in light of that day? It will be here before we know it. So what will you do with today in light of what you know is coming tomorrow? Because truth be told, my friend wanted to check out. She was tired of the pain and tired of the death that surrounded her. She wanted to check out. And I said, don't check out. What life do you have left? Live it. Live whatever life you have left today, knowing what's tomorrow. Hold on to these promises. There's a guarantee of what's to come in Jesus. His resurrection guarantees it all. You see how big this is? You see where this is going? You see what we have in life and in the face of death? It's big. So we can face brokenness, cancer, job loss, rebellious kids, death. Not with a naive, wishful thinking, but a certainty of what's to come. Because Jesus has set it all in motion. And our waiting is not so much about an event but it's about a person. We eagerly wait for Jesus to return and make it all new. Finally, Jesus will appear and bring salvation. Turn with me to Hebrews. Hebrews 9. We're looking at verse 26 through 28. We'll jump in the middle of verse 26, actually. But he has appeared, Jesus has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, there is a judgment to come. So Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. 
and he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but what? To bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. You say, well, I I thought he already brought salvation. He has. For those who look to him are saved, but there's the fullness of this salvation will, will, will be seen for what it is when he comes, when he returns. Jesus will come again, and he will fulfill his promises and complete this divine salvation plan. Now, we know from the final chapter here that it, how it turns out, but the story hasn't ended yet, right? I mean, we're, still, we're, we're living. We're in the midst of this. The final chapter is still being written, so how do you fit into this story? Maybe you're starting to see God for who he is. You've been listening to this storyline. You've heard of creation and the rebellion and rescue, and now you're, you're trying to process restoration. Uh, maybe the brokenness of life is starting to make sense to you more and more. You're saying, okay, there's some satisfactory answers here, but I'm not fully connecting the dots. But maybe to you it all seems too good to be true, like a fairy tale, if you're honest. Maybe you believe it's true, but you're afraid of what it's actually going to mean for your life. What does it mean? Maybe you know that you're a part of this story, and you're actually delighting in it, and you're devoted to it, and you're making sacrifices for it, and you're making decisions that are based on it, and you want to do so more and more. That's good. Or maybe you might, might just be sitting here saying, Darren, I'm just so tired. I'm so tired of the brokenness. I feel so weak and tired. Please look to the promises that I've been listing out for us. Please look and fall on these promises. Trust that God knows what he's doing, that he's put into motion something so outstanding, outrageous through Jesus. It's hard to grasp. But look, and maybe pray, God, I I want what you've accomplished in the past and what you've promised for the future to impact the way I live my life today. Help me to live with my eyes fixed on the restoration that you will bring and on the restoration that you have already begun in my heart. Help me to be faithful with today in light of what I know about tomorrow. Church, the end of the story, the end of the story is meant to fuel your faith now. Not just on your deathbed, but now. We have a lot to look forward to. And I don't know about you, but I'm standing with creation and I'm groaning until the kingdom comes in all of its fullness. One day our longings and imaginations will be met. The promises that we hold on to will be fulfilled. Death, the death and resurrection of Jesus is a guarantee of what's to come. We hold on to that. Revelation 22. We'll close with this. Revelation 22, verse 20. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Who's been testifying to these things? Jesus. Yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. Amen. Creation, rebellion, rescue, restoration. A unified story. Storyline of redemption. Can you tell it? Can you share it? Do you want to? Let's pray. Father, thank you for what you're doing 
Thank you for what you've promised. Thank you for what you've done in Christ, making us new. I don't want to assume that everyone in this room has been made new in Christ. But what I do want to thank you for is that everyone in this room is listening and asking hard questions. Lord, I pray that you would draw all of us closer to yourself. That, that, Lord, if there are those who have been kind of processing this story but now at a place of of wanting to trust and and, and, and look to you as, as God, as Savior, Lord, I pray you do that work in hearts right now. Lord, for all of us in here, I pray that you'd fill us, fill us with hope of what will be and help us to live faithfully today with what we know about tomorrow. We're holding on to promises, God, and we're looking to you. Amen.